So we're going to be in Luke chapter 8. And we're going to pick up at verse 40 and we're going to take it to the end. At least that's the plan. Um, and the title is the, of the study is Jesus Ready for the Desperate. And he is ready for whatever desperate thing is going on in your life. It is never going to be too big for him. It's never going to overwhelm him. In this chapter in, in general, we see the Lord um, doing some great things. Um, the, the last scene, or about you know halfway through this, uh, uh, this chapter, verse 22, um, we see Jesus goes out onto the water and the wind and the waves. They begin to... Uh, come up and begin to threaten their lives um, and Jesus is asleep and then he wakes up and he simply says to the wind and the waves be muzzled be still and immediately everything was still you know we've all watched a storm calm down before but this is something that was turbulent and raging and then immediately stopped um, they finally get to the shore uh, uh, and when they arrive there, this is where they find the demoniacs, right? And um, another desperate situation. It's almost like the enemy was trying to keep Jesus from making his way to the shore. Um, you know, scholars debate about it. Um, the, the words that Jesus uses here when he tells the wind and the waves, when he rebuked them and told them to be still, is the same kind of thing that he says, same word that he would use when he's rebuking and casting out demons. So is there, do we, do we read into that? There's not enough in the text to be definitive about it, but going over to confront Satan, Satan confronts them on the, on the, the, the sea, I would say, and the Lord just says, I've got this. I'm bigger than all this. They get to the shore. This guy is a scary dude, breaking chains. He's cutting himself. Um, and the Lord rebukes this legion of demons they run into the swine, which is, um, so they're in the Decapolis, right? So they're on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, where it was primarily Gentiles. And there was a, a herd of swine. They were raising swine there. That, this was how they were making money. And what happened to them? The demons went into the swine. The swine run off of a cliff. And they go into the sea. And everybody is upset. Because they have lost their opportunity for livelihood. And so what we read there, um, let's see, it's somewhere at the end, around 37, 38. Yeah, it says verse 37. Then the whole multitude of the surrounding region of the Gadarenes asked him to depart from them. For they were seized with great fear, and he got into the boat and returned. Well, what a sad thing, huh? that they would actually do this. Verse 38, Now the man from whom the demons had departed begged him that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, Return to your house, witness, share. So it's interesting. They are begging him to leave. He's begging to go with them. And as we come into our section that we're going to study here in verse 40, we pick up the scene. So they're on the boat, right? And they're heading back. So at verse 40, um, we'll read down to verse 42. It says, So it was when Jesus returned that the multitude welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And behold, there came a man named Jairus, and he was a ruler of the synagogue, and he fell down at Jesus' feet and begged him to come to his house. Do you, do you see what's going on here? 
This guy's begging to follow him. They're begging him to leave. He comes back. They can't wait for him. They're welcoming him. And now the ruler is begging him to come to his house. For he had only had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. But as he went, the multitudes thronged him. So we hear the petition of this desperate father. And the words that we have here, um, when we read it, it says they were all waiting. They were, it's a, it's a verb that is in the imperfect tense, which means this. If you can think about looking at a movie reel in the past, and it's an ongoing action, that's an imperfect verb. Uh, an aorist verb is like taking a picture. So you can look back on like your family videos, right? You can go back and you can see the reel going imperfect. Or you can look back and see a snapshot picture, aorist. There's probably an oversimplification, but you get the feeling that there was an ongoing action. That's what's trying to be communicated here. It wasn't just like, hey, where's that Jesus guy? I don't know. Boom, scene over. That's not what was going on. There was a stir for him. So on the, on, on the you know, eastern side, they're saying, get out of here. But the one guy saying, can I come with you? Jesus says, no, go tell everybody what I just did for you. He gets there, and, and there's this anticipation of the Lord, an expectation that he would come. And not only that, we, we see that in verse 40, that they welcomed him. Well, I mean, what a contrast, isn't it? Now, here's the good news, because we're not going to get to it tonight. When Jesus goes back to the eastern shore, guess what? They're going to welcome him. So they, they're going to have a change of heart. They're going to have a change of mind. And this one man, this demoniac who gets saved, his testimony turns the place upside down so that when he comes back, they are ready to receive him. But I think these are some, some interesting words for us to consider ourselves. How does Jesus feel um, when he came here tonight? When he came walking into the door, if you will, and, and we're here, what did he find in our hearts? What did he find in our minds? When that alarm went off to have our time with the Lord, when we were meeting for whatever that event was, that the Lord was going to be at the center of it. What was the attitude of our heart? What was the temperature of our heart? Was it like the eastern shore that's saying, oh man, not again, but I got to go. Or was it like, where is he? I can't wait to meet with him. Does it make a difference whether or not we actually have a fervent expectation to the Lord? I mean, he's God. Does he, I mean, is he really moved by the heart and the temperature of people? Yes, he is. What, what do we read um, when Jesus was in Nazareth with his own hometown, who they were, if you don't count here, they were among the first that wanted to kill him. Remember, they tried to take him to the precipice of the city of Nazareth and throw him over. Remember that scene? That's them. What does the word of God say was a result? Well, Jesus says he could do no mighty work there because of their unbelief. So the Lord looks for expectation. The Lord looks for faith. And I would encourage you just to kind of roll through the experiences of your own life when you have had high expectation. Maybe if we are even to use the word that we are is in the title. When you had desperation for God, 
versus when you just came in and said, eh, it's cool. I mean, it's church time, you know, it's Bible study, it's what I'm going to do. It's fine, no, no great need in my life, and, you know, and, and there's no, those, those meetings don't usually have the same results. So, the Lord has said that when we seek after Him, we should seek after Him with how much of our heart? Our whole heart. Evidently, He cares, right? He says, and when you seek after me with your whole heart, I will be found by you. So to God, he is not going to, he's not like he's an egotistical maniac looking to be affirmed, you know, and stroked. However, he is God omnipotent. He's, he's, He's the majestic one. He's the divine one. And when we come into his presence, just the thought of it ought to cause us to begin to welcome him and to want to receive him, right? This is the heart that the Lord would have us to have for him, is that of welcoming him. In, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses, verse 13, I think we got an interesting uh, cross-reference here. It says, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, Because when you received the word of God, you heard it from us, you welcomed it, not as a word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. They received and they welcomed. In in, Capernaum, where Jesus returned to, they were waiting and they were welcoming him. They wanted to receive him. So what kind of hospitality does Jesus find in your heart and your life? What kind of hospitality does he find? Because that's the kind of word that's being used here as a hospitality word. What kind of hospitality does he find when it comes? You, you, when you go to somebody's house, you know whether they've taken the time to get things right or not. I mean, it's usually, you know, sometimes maybe just every, some homes are very, very clean. All right, you have no kids. Okay, so, but when you have kids and, you know, you walk into a house, and if you don't know this, here it is. If you walk into a house and um, there are multiple children in that house and it's clean, that's because they knew you were coming and they got it ready for you. It's, it's a show of hospitality, right? They're coming. We've got to get it clean. And so we do this when we know people are coming in from, from out of town. We do it. You do it. It's just a, if you don't, maybe you should try and start. But you know, it's, a, it's a hospitable thing to do to welcome people in. How about our hearts? Are we cleaning our hearts? Are we getting our minds ready? Are we preparing? Are we checking the lack of fervency maybe that even exists there? Because we should. What is your response to the Word of God? Jesus was the Logos, right? He was the Word in flesh. This is what we read in John chapter 1. But the Word of God that we have on our laps, that the Logos brings to us, and ministers to us, what is your feeling about the Word of God? Because in Thessalonians, he says, you welcomed it as the word, not as the Word of men, but as it is in truth, the Word of God. I mean, when we came and we spoke to you, 
time stopped and you listened and you zeroed in because you understood what you were hearing. This wasn't just the, the wranglings and the talkings of men. This was God's truth that was being delivered to you. I, it's hard for us to do this, but imagine that we had faith in God. Kind of like, let's say, imagine like Abraham, right? Let's try and put ourselves in that state. We have tremendous faith in God. We believe that He is the one true and living God, but we don't have a Bible yet. There's nothing to cling to. There's nothing to read. It's just we're having these amazing encounters. But all of a sudden, we heard that God, just in this one church building, let's just say, of course, Calvary Chapel, Trustville, and this one church building, the Lord just miraculously delivered His Word. A fire shaft came down from heaven, burned a hole through the roof, and they're sitting on this beautiful stone edifice that God made with His own finger was a book full of information that was from Him about what was to come in the future, about how we should deal with all kinds of issues. And you had faith in God, but you had never, there was no book. What would be the response of the believing community around the world if we believed it was the inspired, inerrant Word of God? Man, people would be thronging to get in. And here we have it. And so let's make certain that we are um, not like the Gadarenes that are begging, saying, please get out of here. You're bad for business. But let's be those that are welcoming. And, you know, God's Word does change and shape our life. It turns the, it, it turns the tables over sometime in our own life, doesn't it? <laughs> we have a family member, and um, uh, he was talking to his dad, and um, I don't even remember what the issue was, but he, he said, um, his dad is a pastor as well, and said, um, he goes, no, I, I don't know if uh, I believe that. I don't, I don't think that's what the Bible says, Dad. And he says, well, no, it's, it's what it says. He goes, I don't think so. And he, and he says, well, no, that this is a, not a good thing to be thinking or attitude to have whatever it was, action to be carrying on. He goes, well, I don't know. And he says, well, let's go to the Bible and find out. So they opened the Bible, and they read it, and, and the young man said, I'm not happy that's in there. I wish I didn't know that, but now I've got to do it. And, and, you know, that's kind of a raw answer of probably how we feel about some things, right? We just maybe don't state it quite like that. But we bow to the Word of God. We, you know, we're not waiting to try and figure out what to think or what to believe because the Word of God has been given to us. And so as we study it and as we read it, whatever it says is what I bow to. It's what I kneel to. It's what I adjust my life to. I'm not evaluating it. I'm not welcoming it as the word of men. You know, okay, well, that's, that's one website. Let's see what five websites say. So five websites, okay, got three out of five say this. All right, I'm probably going to go, well, you know what? I don't like those three, so I'm just going to go with the two. Sometimes I might. We're not doing that with the word of God. This is right all the time. Let God be true and every man a liar. What does that mean? <laughs> that means if the entire world gathers together on, on an opinion that is different than God's, guess what? Men are counted as liars compared to the truth of God's word. And this is under attack today, isn't it? It's under attack all around us. 
And here's, here's my warning and exhortation that I give to uh, the saints up in, in Lynchburg all the time. The enemy is on the move throughout the church. And um, I'm a big fan of the church. I love the church. And I know how the story ends. The church wins because Jesus builds it and the gates of hell will not prevail. But there's a lot of battles that get lost by certain individuals and even some by some local churches. And so the answer is, how does somebody go from maybe even standing up in front and preaching the Word of God and holding to the inspiration and holding to the inerrancy of the Word of God to one day, you know, standing in front of people and saying, well, you know, the Bible's mostly true. You can't trust all of it. There's good things that comes from all, you know, religious books. How do you, you went to seminary and you went through all of that training and you came to the place to call yourself a Christian and now you don't even know. It's because at some point, if you could, if you could have little dots to graph it, you would see that that expectation began to drop. There was no longer a welcoming of the Word of God. There was no, no longer this waiting, this continual waiting to experience. So for us, we don't wait until we're in the throes of you know, theological uh, uh, doubts that once we, we held them tightly and now we're in the middle of, of wondering. You've you, you got to catch it before then. You've got to look at the expectation point. You see, you see the difference? Because if you can catch it at the expectation point, that's where you make the adjustments and not waiting until you're already ready to throw the, the book out the window. And it's sad because a lot of people are. A lot of people are doing that. A lot of people have been affected by 2020. And I'm, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I, I, you know, you th- think of some of your friends in your family, those who... Um, used to have strong faith in the Lord. What has 2020 done to their faith? And, and we all know people probably where their faith has been squashed. And it's like there's no longer that fervency. And I'm not referring to simple things like do you wear a mask or not wear a mask or do you social distance or lockdown or not. I'm talking about things that are much deeper. I'm talking about just a faith and trust in the person of Jesus Christ and that He is the way, the truth, and the life. And so some people in this year... Man, through these events, their faith has been exposed and it's, and it's wanting. There wasn't a depth to it. So, not just a matter of having fun feelings towards the Word of God, but do we bow before the power of its uh, instruction to our life and say, Yes, Lord. So this is the scene. They were waiting. They were welcoming. They couldn't wait for Jesus to get back. But there's one man in particular that's at the top of the list of that waiting, right? And his name is Jairus. This is that guy whose daughter is 12 years old, and she's dying. And um, before the scene is over, I'm going to, spoiler alert, if you've never read this story, his daughter is going to die before Jesus gets there. So this is a desperate situation. This isn't just like, you know, we better get Jesus. I mean, this could get ugly. No, it's ugly. It's it's already desperate. Um, And you can imagine how this man must have felt. Now, he's a synagogue, or think of the the head of the the synagogue. He was a president. And this was a, a position that meant that people really trusted you. 
You had a zeal for the Lord. You had a zeal for meeting. Um, he, this, this position would have functioned a lot like the modern day pastor. He would have been taking care of the needs that existed in the synagogue. He would have made sure that they had the necessary scrolls that were in, you know, there for the reading that was going to take place. He was in charge of building maintenance. He was in charge of the scriptures. He was in charge of um, attending to the sick and to the needy. Um, he was going to set the, um, the, the calendar for who was going to read and who was going to pray. This is Jairus. His name means whom God enlightens. Enlightens. And he's not too enlightened yet, but he's going to get enlightened. So if you're familiar with what's led up to this, Jesus has already had many um, serious confrontations with the Pharisees, um, Sadducees, the religious leaders. They were already questioning him. They were already, the, the, the scene at um, uh, the Pharisee, uh, Simon's house, where that woman who came in with uh, that alabaster flask of oil, she was a woman that was a noted sinner. Most of the time people say she was a prostitute. Scripture doesn't say so. But she was a noted sinner in town, whatever it was. And um, they're having a meal. And she comes in to the house, which was not so uncommon. When you had a guest that would come to your house at this point in, in you know, history, if you had something that was really important that would come in, um, you would allow guests to kind of line up along the edges of the room. They didn't necessarily participate in the meal. Um, they weren't supposed to talk. But they could sit there and they could watch this guest there. Well, she comes in, and this is where, you know, they didn't have tables like us, right? They had tables where they reclined so their feet are going out. And she comes, and she falls down at the feet of Jesus. She begins to weep. She begins to wipe uh, his feet with her hair. She puts his oil on his feet, and um, she wipes his feet again. And, and um, Simon says in his mind, yeah, I knew this guy wasn't the real deal. Because if he was a real deal, there's no way he would have ever let this woman touch him. And so Jesus already sees that rejection happening. Simon would have been, I mean, Jairus would have been well aware of the attitude of the elders. They're the ones that would have appointed him to this position. He would have been well aware as being the synagogue leader, presumably there in Capernaum, Jesus' headquarters. He would have known what the attitude was. Does he care? No. Because he's desperate. He is desperate. He is not, you know, taking uh, a poll. Okay, uh, Simon, can you run a quick, you know, a poll uh, among all the, the Pharisees and Sadducees? Should I ask Jesus to um, come and heal my daughter or not? If he would have even thought it, mom would have looked at him and said, don't you dare, you just go get him. If you know it's good for you, you know, Jairus, Go get Jesus. Well, we're not sure about I don't care. We all know he's been healing people. You go get him. And whatever the attitude of Jairus was, he comes. He is not worried. He is no longer walking in the fear of man. He comes and he asks the Lord for help. Um, Herod, remember Herod when he threw that great feast? And he uh, says to his daughter, um, ask whatever you want. And you can have it. And she says, okay. Um, it's what every daughter wants, you know. 
I want the head of John the Baptist. And, and Herod was like, oh man, he was sad that she had asked for these things. But because everybody had heard what he had said, ask you know, up to half and I'll give it to you. Um, he's sad, but he fears man and he goes ahead with a really bad decision. He's unwilling to change it. Not Jairus. He's not like many of our politicians today who take a poll to find out what the people want to go ahead and then you know, come up with a policy. No, he wasn't doing that. He was like, I'm coming to Jesus because I have to have his involvement in my life. The stakes were too high. And in reality, the stakes are always too high for a person in their encounter with Jesus. It may not be a 12-year-old daughter, but it could be our soul. It could be our walk with him. And so we should all have that desperation to want to be close to the Lord and have his involvement in our life regardless of what the world thinks about it. I don't know, what do you think? In the next, you know, outside of a revival, which we can pray for, and we can ask the Lord to be merciful to us, but if that revival doesn't happen, and the Lord allows America to go the way many countries who once were on fire, and the churches were, you know, sending missionaries and all the, all the rest, if that doesn't happen, and we continue on the same trajectory that the church is on right now, and the culture's on right now, do you think we're going to be liked more or less in five years? What about in 10 years? I mean, just, okay, so we're at 2021. Take it back to 2011, if you can remember that. What was the attitude towards the churches? It was nothing like it is now in times of crisis. What a contrast. Fast forward that, let's say even another decade. If we are worried about what people are going to think about us in pursuing Jesus... We're not going to pursue Jesus. We just won't do it. So we can take a lesson from this one uh, who is enlightened and is becoming enlightened before our very eyes and come and call upon the Lord. Really, Jairus becomes a picture of how we should approach the Lord. First, we need to come and we need to ask Him. James says we have not because we ask not. So we're still there in verses uh, 42 and 40, uh, 41, 42. Second, we should come in humility. He fell at the feet of Jesus. You are the greater. I am the lesser. I have need. You have power. I humble myself. That brokenness, recognizing God's majesty and our lowliness. Such a healthy perspective to have when we come before the Lord. Don't come before the Lord with your finger in his face for the reason or for the ways he's been doing things. No, that, that's not the way we come. We come with a sense of brokenness and humility. We fall at the feet of Jesus. The third thing that he did is that he begged Jesus, which is a lot like coming and asking, I, I, I grant you. But let's just make this distinction. I'll just, I'll just throw the word fervency in here. That begging is not simply... A, a rote request, that is what you usually do, ramble through your prayer request. No, this is a begging. This is a fervency. So he comes, he asks, he comes with humility, he comes with fervency, and then fourth, we come with faith. He obviously had confidence that Jesus would and could answer his prayer. How much faith? And here's the answer. This is, I, I love that question. How much faith do you need? Enough to ask. How about that? Enough to ask. I, I pray that a lot. 
Lord, I don't know if I have faith that is pleasing to you, but I have enough faith to ask you. And if that's not enough, then change my faith and build my faith. But Lord, we come with at least that much faith to ask. And so he had enough faith to at least ask. And Jesus has always moved by faith, isn't he? If you get some time, go through Matthew and look at how many times you find this phrase, according to faith, according to their faith. You probably could do a word search if you go to like Blue Letter Bible and you could just do a little search. You type according and faith and look just in Matthew. And many times you're going to see, and it was done according to their faith. It was done according to their faith. It was, multiple times, the Lord responds to faith. He, can we please the Lord if we don't come with faith? No. We have a scripture verse about that, don't we? That He's pleased when we come with faith. Then He's a rewarder of those that diligently seek Him. Yeah, but there's a lot of faith, you know, healers out there and stuff. And a lot of people think that if you just have enough faith, you can have anything. So I'm just not going to worry about that. No, wait. Faith is God's idea, and people hijack it, and they do what they want to do with it. But faith is a biblical concept. It began first in the heart and the mind of God that His people would be a people of faith. Faith has always been an important part. How was Abraham saved? By faith, not, through, not because of circumcision, right? Not because of offering up of Isaac but the faith that he showed. And so he has that faith. So come and have a confidence, that expectation. So verse 43, we'll, we'll move on. So we, 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 Jairus and his situation is introduced, but then we, things shift. Remember that throng is all around him. Verse 43, we keep reading. It says, Now a woman having a flow of blood for 12 years. Interesting. I don't know what you're going to do with it. But there's a 12-year-old daughter and a woman has a flow of blood for 12 years. It's probably just a way in which there are you know, similarities between the stories. I don't think you need to read too much into 12 other than it's, it's shown you that there's a similar uh, number of years that are existing. So she's had this flow of blood for 12 years who has spent all of her livelihood on physicians and could not be healed by any came from behind and touched the border of his garment, and immediately her flow of blood stopped. And Jesus said, Who touched me? I think it's really important. Do you guys ever try to imagine tone in the Scripture? Because I think tone really matters here, don't you think? Who touched me? Oh, I mean, you know, everybody, no, who's going to answer that, right? But I don't think Jesus said it like that at all. I think he's like, Who touched me? Who was it that reached out and touched me? Um, it, it was gentle. When all denied it, Peter and those with him said, Master, the multitudes throng and press you. And you say, who touched me? In other words, another way to say it is like, Jesus, who hasn't touched you? I mean, everybody's touched. I mean, this is kind of, I, don't, I mean, come on, let's, let's get back on track here, Lord. You know, this was going really well. And he says, but Jesus said, somebody touched me. For I perceive power going out from me. Now when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, she declared to him in the presence of all the people the reason she had touched him and how she was healed immediately. And he said to her, 
He used a super tender word, which helps us to understand what the tone was. He says, daughter, be of good cheer. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. There's so much going on here. And I know that you guys are probably familiar with this. But under the Mosaic law, if a woman had an issue of blood, even the monthly cycle, that she would have to go through uh, purification before she could come and go to the temple. And if anybody came in contact with her, she, uh, they also would become considered unclean until they went through purification. It wasn't punishment. It just was a way of speaking of the need to approach the Lord and to be, to be clean. So it was, it was a, not a punishment thing. It's just what was going on. So here she is, and she's had a flow of blood for 12 years, which means she should never, nobody should ever touch her. I think the best way to, to try and lock into your mind from a sociological point of view, from an emotional point of view, what this was like is think of the leper. She's in that same kind of state where she's not been able to have that human touch. And now she comes, it would seem incognito, pressing through the crowd, bumping into all of these people. They're all jostling about. And she reaches through, touches the hem of his garment. I'm sure she was thinking, oh, I'm not going to touch him. I'll just touch his hem. Because if I, I don't want to make him unclean. I just want to touch this part of it. She reaches out. She feels that change in her body. And she kind of draws back. And she's ready just to turn and go home with a wonderful healing and Jesus says, who touched me? What do you think happened to her, her heart when he said, who touched me? Oh, no. Yeah, Peter, Peter's right. Yeah, everybody touched you. No, no, no. Somebody touched me. And, and it says here, when she realized that she couldn't be hidden. How did, how did she realize she couldn't be hidden? We don't know. So here's Troy Warner's thought. That's not a very deep thought. I just think he was looking at her. Who touched me? No, no, nobody touched. Everybody's touched you. No, but somebody's touched me. And you can just see him kind of looking. And without drawing attention, she knows she's engaged in the conversation. We all do that in conversation with each other, don't we? That's my thought. When she knew she wasn't hidden, the Lord is he's locked in. Why would he do that to her? Why would he do that? There's a really good reason. I can tell you what some reasons aren't. He wasn't trying to humiliate her. He wasn't trying to embarrass her. She's had this flow of blood for 12 years. It's something that doesn't mean as much in our culture, but in that culture, it meant everything. I mean, you know, everybody would go, wait a minute, her? We're all unclean now. I mean, this is the thought that's running through people's mind. And she's aware of that. She realized that a lot of people could get very upset with her. Not a life-threatening situation, but man, who wants to be called out like that socially? And, um, and, and so why would the Lord do this? Well, I, I think one reason is he wanted everybody to know what had just taken place. And here's the thing. We all like to kind of reach our hand through the crowd, touch Jesus, pull it back, and escape. 
We don't all like to be out there and tell the story of what happened. Who touched me? I touched you. What happened? I mean, we don't know. Maybe it just was well known. But we, here, I mean, the stories filled in for us. At some point in time, everybody knew. Well, I've had a flow of blood for 12 years. And everybody would be like, oh. and what happened? I'm healed. You're healed. Go in peace. There's no, there's no hostility here. Everything is okay. Go home. So I think in, in one hand, it was to, to, to just communicate to everybody what the Lord had done. And so here's a challenge I want to give to you. Uh, first, I'll say this. The Bible says that a fool utters his whole heart. So there's a place to share aspects of what God has done, and there's a place to reserve some things that you just won't share. But if we are so closed with what God does in our life, how He touches us and heals us, and how He moves, and how He corrects, and how He restores, and how He saves, then how will He ever get glory? And isn't He worthy of glory among the crowd for what He's done in our life? And so we can become so shameful and so embarrassed and so prideful. We get our eyes all on ourselves that we never want to make a proclamation of what God has done. So I think here's an example of how the Lord wants glory, even in those embarrassing things of our life. If He's done something, let it be known. Share it. Seek the face of the Lord and let Him lead you and guide you in them. But I think the Lord also was just wanting to, he was wanting to have a contact with her that was deeper than just a, a, you know, a power experience. He, he wanted to connect with her. Who touched me? That would be me. Yes. And you can go in peace, daughter. Everything's okay. And she got to go home. And don't you know, for the rest of her, her life. This story was told. Not just that I reached to the crowd and I touched, because there's that, there's that element of embarrassment in that. He said, but then he talked to me. You talked with Jesus, I talked with him. What was it like? Well, you know, we made eyes, and he said, no, who touched me? Somebody touched me. I know. And I knew when he said that. I, you, you can imagine the story. You know, in this five-second exchange probably was, you know, built into 20 minutes as you threw all of the, the emotion and all of that that was going on, all that was communicated between her heart and the Lord's heart and that short exchange. I guarantee you, she might not have been glad at the moment that, she, that Jesus said, no, 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 somebody touched me. We're getting to the bottom of this. She probably wasn't happy then, but when she left for the rest of her life, she had a story of an encounter with the Lord that she was very glad to share. And you can imagine everybody wanted to hear that story from her. So we're looking at desperate situations. We have a desperate scene on the water. We have a desperate man that's possessed with devils. We have a desperate Jairus. And now we have this desperate woman. And the Lord is just knocking these situations down one by one. And he is showing his power. And what a beautiful thing it is. You know, in the world today, there's sickness, but it was not God's plan that there would be sickness. That was not God's plan. A lot of people 
struggle with the Lord. They're like, I just don't know. I can't believe in a God that would allow a child to be born or would let a good person like this to suffer when there are so many bad people that are just living great lives. And so people look at this and they have a hard time understanding why God doesn't step in. And the, the news is this. It was not God's plan. It was a result of sin, right? Sin brought death into this world. And so we have situations where a, what seemed like a really kind, good woman finds herself for 12 years in a desperate situation. But this is, we, this is us living in a fallen world. Listen, for this one woman, there was thousands of other women that needed a touch, but Jesus didn't heal everybody, did he? He healed some to show his power, to reveal his character, to give hope. And one day, we know, as it says in Revelation, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. What are the former things? The consequences of sin. So some people say, I just can't follow the Lord because this bad thing has happened or because this person got sick or because that. Well, listen, if you want that to be changed, don't abandon Jesus. <laughs> Because he is the one that's going to turn it all around. So if you have a great disdain for sickness and death and disease and birth defects and all the rest, then line up behind Jesus because he has a plan to one day take care of it once and for all and it will never happen again. It was not his plan. This is a result of sin. Things happen in this world and you cannot blame the Lord. Just like, you know, famine and injustice and the thievery of, of people. You know, um, you know, they say over in Haiti, there are still warehouses full of aid. And the stuff has just become rotten and mildewed and it's no longer. Over in Nepal, from the earthquakes they had years ago, there are still um, homes and warehouses full of stuff that the government just held on to. Because they could only, you know, they were charging so much. And finally, it just, stuff's there. And it's just, it's become rotten. They can't even use it. Degree to man. Well, who does that? Well, God doesn't approve of it. If you, if you have a problem with injustice, then line up behind Jesus, because he's first in line to speak against injustice and sickness and disease and corruption. And to look and say, I don't want anything to do with the Lord or Jesus because of this stuff, is to go in the exact opposite. Get on the winning team who's going to deal with all these things, and his name is Jesus. He is going to change it all. We keep on reading um, here. And just a little bit about the, the, the cloak. Um, you can look, read in Numbers uh, chapter 15, verses 38 and 39. This was um, a tassel, is what we believe it, it was. she was grabbing, that was on the corner of an outer garment that was worn by observant Jews. So she was reaching for, for this that you know, any observant Jew would have had. Let's keep reading, though. Um, we move, and you know what? Actually, if I could just pause before I move on, I want to read, I want to read one thing. Um, because as we, we think about this, there's a lot of people that are all around Jesus, right? Think about that throng around him. There's a lot of people touching him and bumping up into him. There's only a few that really have an encounter with him. Right? Broad is a path that leads to destruction, narrow is the path that leads to life. There's all kinds of multitudes that followed him, right? 
and thousands of them followed him. But when it was all said and done, there was only 120 that were in that upper room. I don't know that we should read into that. Those were the only ones of faith, okay? But the numbers dwindled greatly after he was crucified. And Jesus told us that this is what would happen. The prophets told us after you know, the shepherd is struck that you know, people are going to scatter. But we should be those that are trying to have that divine encounter with God and not just simply brushing up to see what we can get out from it. I want to read to you, it's a quote from J.C. Ryle. He says, Many follow Jesus from curiosity and derive no benefit from Him. One and only one followed under a deep sense of her need and of our Savior's power to relieve her. And that one received a mighty blessing. We see the same thing going on continually in the church of Christ at the present day. This gets kind of, he lays a rebuke down, so just, you know, buckle up. Crowds go to our places of worship and fill our pews. Hundreds come to the Lord's table and receive the bread and wine. But of all these worshipers and communicants, how few really obtain anything from Christ, fashion, custom, form, habit, the love of excitement, or an itching ear are the true motives of the vast majority. There are just a few here and there who touch Christ by faith and go home in peace. These may seem hard sayings, but they are sadly too true. I'll leave it to you to evaluate how much truth you put on that. How broadly is that applied? But I can tell you what my response is to this is, I don't want to be the majority. I want to be among the too few <laughs> that are encountering the Lord and experiencing Him. So, let's move on now. Verse 47, 48. Now, when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before Him. She declared, him, uh, declared to Him in the presence of all the people the reason she had touched Him and how she was healed immediately. And He said to her, Daughter, be of good cheer. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Verse 49. While he was still speaking, someone came from the ruler of the synagogue's house. Remember, we, Jairus is still on the scene, right? Saying to him, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher. Well, that guy needs to go into a class on how to deliver information, don't you think? Your daughter's dead. Don't bug him anymore. How cold and how heartless. Uh, I mean, it's just like, wow. I mean, you read that and it's just there. But Jesus isn't going to have that response at all. But Jesus said to him, Do not forbid him, for, she, for he who is not against us. I'm sorry, wrong verse. Turn to chapter, verse 49. While he was still speaking, someone came from the ruler of the synagogue's house, saying to him, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher. But when Jesus heard it, he answered, saying, do not be afraid, only believe, and she will be made well. When he came into the house, he permitted no one to go in except Peter, James, and John, and the father and the mother of the girl. Now all wept and mourned for her, but he said, Do not weep, she is not dead but sleeping. But they ridiculed him, knowing that she was dead. But he put them all outside took her by the hand and called, saying, Little girl, arise. Then her spirit returned, and she arose immediately, and he commanded that she be given something to eat. 
and her parents were astonished, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. So now we see Jesus having power over sickness, power over demons, power over nature, power over death here. And so we're just seeing that he is a complete Messiah. There's nothing lacking. Again, at that interesting parallel of 12 years uh, between the woman and this 12-year-old little girl. Is it hard to imagine, it's not in the text, but is it hard to imagine agitation in your heart if you're Jairus while this whole scene's going on with the woman, the flow of blood? I mean, it's kind of like, can you please just hurry up? I mean, she's had this thing for 12 years. That's okay. She, I mean, 12 years and one hour is not going to matter, okay? Get to my house. <laughs> my daughter needs you. We don't see any of that. But those delay, that delay did lead to her death and eventual resurrection. But the delay, at least for the moment, looked like it kept Jairus and Mrs. Jairus from receiving the thing they wanted so desperately. Does anybody like delay in their life? Does anybody, do you, know, you do a lot of traveling? I, yeah. How about delays in the airport? Aren't those like the best? I mean, you tell you what the worst is when, you're, when you actually land at the airport you're supposed to be at early and you sit on the tarmac waiting for a gate and you watch your other plane pull out. Okay, I'm not going anywhere for 12 hours. I'm now stuck in Germany for the next 12 hours. And I mean, those, nobody likes delays. We want things and we want it now, right? And, you, and if there ever was a place for somebody to want something now, he certainly would have been at the top of the list. Delays in Scripture might be an interesting topical Bible study to do. Try and list all the delays if you can. There's a lot of them. But one that stands out to me that's really very similar to this is when Mary and Martha call for Jesus to come because their brother Lazarus was sick. And Jesus delayed a few days. I think it was four days before he got there. And when she shows up, Martha says, Oh, I see that you finally made it. It's okay. Uh, we trust you and your timing and you know all things. Is that what she says? Yeah, I mean, her hands are on her hip. If there's ever a lady that has her hands on her hip, it's Martha at this moment. Where were you? You delayed, and now look what happened. I mean, it's a, it's a finger in the face of God. It really is. The Lord is so tender with her. He's gracious with her. Delay. What about the children of Israel? Forty years of delay in the wilderness. And you know, when, when delay begins to happen, we say things like, well, you know, this is just never going to work out. If this doesn't happen by 12 o'clock, then it's just over. I don't know. I don't know how to even think about God anymore if he doesn't show up at 12 o'clock. And now it's 1 o'clock. And it's 2 o'clock. And somehow you still like, well, I thought things would have all been over by now. And everything would have fallen apart in my life because it's past 12 o'clock. And yet, the Lord is able to sustain in the midst of delay. I like to think about the children of Israel walking around the wilderness for those 40 years. And we, we have an interesting statement that's given to us about their shoes, their footwear. Does anybody know what it is? What, what happens to their footwear in those 40 years? It never wore out. But you know Mama was thinking about it, right? And she's saying to Dad, hey, we've got to find a way to get some shoes. These things aren't going to last forever. 
Well, they look good to me. Yeah, but come on, let's be practical here. They're not going to last forever. And then another six months goes on, and another year goes on, and a decade goes on. I'm sure those shoes are going to give out, some, sandals are going to give out sometime. And they didn't give out. The Lord is able to sustain in the midst of the delay. Is there a delay in your life? I've asked for this and it hasn't come yet. Oh, but wait. That delay is an opportunity for God to show himself strong. And just because we draw the line right here, and <laughs> says, if it doesn't happen by this point in time, then it's all over. The Lord's like, it's not all over. Yes, it is. My daughter's dead. It's okay. She's only sleeping. And everybody laughs at him. And he raises her from the dead. So even if there's zero time on the clock, God's not out of the game. There's a story, and we'll, we'll wrap, begin to wrap it up here. In the Old Testament, well, the children of Israel, Joshua's out there fighting against the, the Canaanites and driving them out of the land in the valley of Aijalon. And they're having great victory, but there's one problem. They're running out of daylight. Right? The sun's going down, and they want to make a complete you know, routing of the army so they don't have to deal with these guys again. And so they're running out. We should have started early. Or, that's the problem. We would have started earlier. Joshua, you know, would have been... No, wait a minute. The Lord's got a plan. What's his plan? He's just going to cause the sun to stand still. No, that can't happen. <laughs> well, it can if it's a miracle. If God wants to keep it all... No, you see, because all these things will happen. Listen, who's the one that made all these laws? of gravity and, you know, all the... It's him. He can handle all of the consequences of causing the sun to stand still, giving them extra daylight, and they end up routing the enemy completely. I just want to say, just because there's no time on the clock or you're down to 10 seconds, it doesn't mean that the game is over. And even if the buzzer sounds... The game is still not over because God dwells where? Outside of time. It's not a problem for him. He's able to do that. God finishes the work that he begins. When he began to make his way to Jairus' house, he committed to the work of that sick little girl. And just because he was delayed by a sick woman and he had to call her out and give her the, this chance to know that she had been healed and a chance for her to confess him before everyone. That mean the Lord was, was uh, now, oh, well, sorry, Jairus. I mean, you know how it goes. Ministry's ministry. And no, he's like, let's go. And um, he speaks and raises her from the dead. So as we look at this scene, again, we see Jesus has power over the, the sea, the Sea of Galilee, the lake. He has power over the demons. He has power over disease. He has power over death. He is a complete Messiah. There is nothing that is missing in him or his abilities. The things that might be missing are expectation in us for him to hear his word. There might be a lack of hospitality towards him. You know, Jesus said that he wanted to come and he and the Father wanted to make our hearts his what? His home. Whose home? His home. What do you do in your home? You set it up the way you want it to look. When some of the people are moving out of the house, you say, no, listen, 
You can't change the, you know, the pink carpet. And you can't change, you know, the, this, this red room. And you can't change this, you know, 1970, you know, vinyl. And you can't change, you know, this old, you know, mustard colored looking, you know, nasty. Um, if you have that, I'm sorry. Um, uh, <laughs> oven, you know, from the 60s that has caked on yuckiness. You can't, you can't, we'll sell it to you. But you can't change any of that. Not buying. Because if I buy it, I'm going to change whatever I want to change. And you have been bought with a price. It's the blood of Jesus. And he said he wants to make your heart his home. Welcome him in. Allow the word of God to have its impact upon you. And allow him to rip out the carpet. And allow him to clear out the closets. Allow him to rip out that nasty you know, oven that's gross and all the rest. And yeah, you've had a lot, you know, maybe a lot of great memories. Let it come out. Let it be ripped out. And then you might be standing there for a moment looking at your house and it feels like everything that's important and valuable has just been taken. But don't worry because while that moment is processing through your mind, what am I going to do now? You hear the honk of, uh, you know, the, the moving trucks coming in to bring in brand new everything. And come in, they're going to lay fresh carpet. They're going to paint the walls. They're going to give you a new oven. They're going to give you a new refrigerator stuffed with all the best, every type of food. And the closets are going to be filled with the most amazing treasures because the God, our God is a great renovator. Man, he knows how to flip a house. And your heart and my heart is his home.